Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Paul Gesson. I'm a professor at metabolic medicine at the Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health and Great Ormond Street Hospital. And it's my great pleasure this afternoon to present the lunch hour lecture uh, on developing therapies for muscular dystrophy and spinal muscular atrophy, which is given by Professor Francesco Mantoni. Francesco Mantoni is a professor of pediatric neurology and the director of the Dubovitz Neuromuscular Center at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health and Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. He trained in Italy, but has been working in the UK since 1993. His interest uh, is in pathogenesis, deep phenotyping, gene identification for rare neuromuscular conditions, and also importantly, translational research in DMDs, spinal muscular atrophy and congenital myopathies. His research funded by the Department of Health, MRC, and the European Commission led to the development and early clinical trials of two antisense oligonucleotides, which are now approved by FDA, that induce partial correction of the processing defect of the DMD gene in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. He is the UK chief investigator for many clinical trials on DMD and SMA, which do include AAV trials. He is a theme lead in the novel therapies at the Gosh Biomedical Research Center and previously led developmental neuroscience program. Francesco is a co-director of the MRC International Center for Genomic Medicine in Neuromuscular Diseases. And very excitingly, his new role uh, is as a director for Gene Therapy Translational Research Partnership between Institute of Child Health and Neurology, a genetic therapy accelerator center. This center will combine laboratory and clinical expertise focused on neurological, neuromuscular, and neurodegenerative disorders, their mechanism of disease, and cutting-edge RNA and AAV gene therapy expertise, and foster cross-institutional collaborations between Queen Square Institute of Neurology and the Institute of Child Health. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, and over to Francesco now for his lecture. Um, firstly, uh, Paul, thank you very much for your kind introduction. I, um, well, I um, you know, we worked together in the Bersia Biomedical Research Center for now several years, and I really enjoy uh, working with you. Um, I um, also need to share my screen and uh, uh, give you my presentation of the work that uh, our work, our group is doing in the field as indicated by uh, Paul. I think that I cannot underemphasize how exciting and how different my job is today compared to five years ago. And I think I need you to uh, hopefully get enthusiastic um, how things are changing our, our eyes. That's not only in neuromuscular disorder, of course, but uh, in uh, many other conditions. This will be my disclosure. You will have them in the, uh, in the uh, presentation. I do not have any direct revenue for any of the medication I will be discussing. But of course, I do work with industry to develop novel therapies. And I will explain and take you through two different concepts through my presentation. And these two concepts uh, ap apply well, both to Duchenne muscular dystrophy and to spinal muscular atrophy. Of course, I will explain to you what these conditions are, but I will discuss firstly the role and the impact that dealing with mutant RNA has, because there are uh, very interesting development for both uh, condition dealing with this. And briefly, I will also discuss where the field is moving, displacing genes with gene therapy, as we, uh, as Paul mentioned, are also involved in industry-sponsored research, but uh, this led to three treatments also available in the country, in this country, for our children, and we have been uh, actively involved in that work. So just very quickly, what is Duchenne muscular dystrophy? This is a condition that only affects boys, is an X-linked condition. It does affect um, 
every year in this country, approximately 80 children are born with a condition. It does lead to progressive loss of muscle and destruction of muscle to the point that eventually in the, you know, by the age of nine, 10, 11, 12, children stop walking and eventually they develop cardiorespiratory difficulties and uh, without intervention, survival is really not possible uh, past the middle twenties and so on. And why they develop this terrible condition is that because in the muscle fiber, this is the, 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 sar the sarcolemma, this is the uh, surface protein, the surface of the muscle cells. One particular key protein, this yellow protein that really works almost as a shock absorber is absent. And without this protein uh, that here you can see in these nice red rims as uh, a circular, uh, uh, circular rim again uh, around each single fiber, children with Duchenne completely lose it and eventually they lose muscle. And this is what a muscle biopsy of a late ambulant child looks like. You can see a few muscle fibers in a sea of connected tissue and fat. And that of course is why these children become weaker. I think for those colleagues, for those people who do not have experiencing Duchenne, this is a young child with Duchenne on the left hand side that is running with already a little of difficulty. This is our presentation. This is the first visit of a child. Then ambulation becomes increasingly difficult because of progressive weakness and contracture. There is like tightening of the Achilles tendon and then eventually walking becomes impossible. And this is a child who can really only do as you can appreciate a few steps before needing to rest. And eventually these children will lose the ability to walk. Now, is an X-linked condition I did not say, but perhaps it's useful to know that one of the reasons why it continues to occur is because there is a high rate of de novo mutation in the population. And these de novo mutations are very often out of frame deletions, some a duplication, then there can be some nonsense mutation and some small mutation. These are the 79 exons of the dystrophin gene. And you realize that is different color code because if you take, for example, exon three, um, this means that blue and the square means that if you remove exon three, you're removing an integral number of nucleotide and therefore two and four uh, can stick together and the protein uh, looks identical with the exception of missing the information encoded by exon three. While if you remove exon six, as an example, then seven and five do not match together. And this leads to an out-of-frame um, deletion, for example, and the uh, inability to produce distortion. Now, nature already gave us some indication that, um, that there might be the possibility to work on the mutant gene and trim it. To the, in a way to make a, the, the, the gene able to produce at least some protein uh, and lead to a better phenotype. And this is demonstrated in nature by the condition that is called Becker muscular dystrophy, that is uh, a much milder form of muscular dystrophy where most people remain able to walk for life, where you can see here in this slide, there is the production of some protein. And I think what is interesting in people with Becker is that they also have deletion in the dystrophin gene, but they have in-frame deletion instead of out-of-frame deletion. So one line of thought in the field is how can you trim and affect messenger RNA, pre-splicing pre of the pre-messenger RNA, and uh, make sure that the Duchenne mutation behave as Becker-like mutation. And I have here, a video that was prepared by a group of PhD students from a very close collaborative group in the Netherlands. This is a PhD student um, uh, that won a particular, I think it was a nature award for communication in science. And I shut up for three minutes and allow you to see how what I'm saying can be done. I'm scared, man. Yo, da 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 da
Thank I hope you got the message and I, oh, I don't want to start it again of how that happened, but it is quite uh, enjoyable, but I think let's go to um, the what has been done in the field. So the concept of removing and pushing away as that a bloke with the uh, green um, hair was able to do can be done using splice modulation antisensory oligonucleotides and a number of antisensory oligonucleotides have been developed and I developed two in collaboration with Sarepta Therapeutics, these uh, antisense that skip exon 51 or 53. Of course, the uh, different antisense are necessary for different parts of the gene because not everybody has the same mutation. And uh, targeting exon 51, for example, deal with uh, approximately 15% of children with Duchenne, egg targeting was 53 for 8%, targeting uh, 45, another 8%. And the our work uh, with selected now has been also extended by work by other companies. There is one company called NS Pharma that also is targeting some of the endostrophin exons. So the, the field is moving very fast. But I tell you what I did at the very beginning, but also what I did more recently that is part of the, uh, uh, like the, the work that uh, led to this, uh, the, the fact that I've been asked to make this presentation. So we started much before that video, that video was done in 2011, I think. And uh, so we uh, obtained uh, funding uh, with a UK consortium. You have the name in the consortium uh, quite a while ago. And we started in the, you know, the grant, we obtained a grant from the Department of Health in 2005. And we started um, in, in a measured um, like way to try to understand whether this idea was stupid or was 
possible and more safe. And we started in a minimalistic way first by taking a single injection in a single muscle, in a foot muscle that then um, was biopsy after, because we felt if this is not working, or if this cause trouble, at least we will not impair function in these patients. So you have here the seven patients that were studied in this open label study. And there is each individual has biopsy before and after. And uh, you, you can appreciate that uh, in most patients, in some patients was less than others, but in most patients, the level of disruption produced is pretty remarkable. So that was an encouraging thing, but clearly, uh, you're not going to go very far if you have to take a needle and inject every single muscle. And also, don't forget, one, these antisense do not correct the gene, but correct the way the gene is processed. So you need to administer them again and again. So that was our second step that for which we obtained a massive funding. And this was also done in collaboration with the same company. And we did a dose escalation intravenous study where we use uh, different doses, and eventually we arrive to an optimal tolerated dose. I'm not going to present everything because this is published work now many years ago, but we uh, identified a dose that allow us to produce sufficient disorder to be potentially of clinical significance. This was weekly infusion. And then uh, the study was also continued now in, uh, in the States by other colleagues, the group of Jerry Mandel, and they were able to confirm the same finding, but also extend our, our the duration of our studies into also a clinical efficacy study. Although these were all open label studies, we deal with a relatively um, you know, rare condition is not uh, so easy to do randomized placebo controlled studies. And these were studied at the very beginning, but not only therefore they showed that it was possible to restore this token, but also that uh, in, uh, if you compare to untreated patients uh, from much uh, clinical cohorts that lose the ability to walk um, in the way indicated by this blue line, it was possible uh, to prolong the way these children uh, are able to walk by several years, um, up between three to five years, of improvement of the walking abilities. And this clearly, it does not stop the disease, but I think allows to uh, buy more time. And indeed, buy more, more time is not only with the legs, but also with the breathing muscle, with several studies suggesting that compared to the untreated patient, the administration of this drug lead to nearly half of the yearly respiratory decline in a way that is dependent on how many years you have been studied. So the longer duration study, I feel like you accumulate the benefit uh, of uh, and the slowdown of the disease progression. And indeed, I don't think it's in my next slide, but I presented last week in Canada, now information regarding the long-term effect of survival of this drug in the, uh, if you like, in the real world in the States. So this led to FDA approving this drug in 2019, based on the, uh, this uh, data. And more recently, I, uh, together with, again, a large consortium, um, also in collaboration with the, the same company called Sarepta, but um, in, you know, as an academic consortium linking multiple countries, we built on the, what we have done, and this time develop another sense that developed instead of skip, uh, skipping exome 51, skip exome 53. And we did uh, build on the experience of the first time. We did a dose escalation study uh, with a short placebo arm um, and to see whether we could replicate some of the data from the previous study. And indeed, we were able to demonstrate uh, that um, compared to before, this is an example of one patient, a muscle biopsy before, and this is on the right-hand side, the same exposure, there is no treat the biopsy afterwards, but this is probably one of our best responders. But I, I tell you as an investigator, when you look under the microscope, 
uh, a patient vibes before and after, and this is what we, you find, and we look at all of them blinded, just to be clear, it really makes you go home very happy. We were able to demonstrate that there was therefore more protein pres presented on Western blot. We were able to demonstrate with um, uh, RNA studies that the antisense was inducing the uh, expected exon skipping. We look at also immunocytochemical aspect to demonstrate that the stroking was present at the sarcolemma as you expect. But I think for me, uh, also very interesting, we published this maybe six, eight months ago. We were able to demonstrate that the fibers we, we measure um, in the muscle biopsy, not only if the stroking is present, but if there is damage, and I do not go into the detail of how we measure this, but we were able to demonstrate that whenever there was um, uh, uh, disrobing expression, where there was more disrobing expression, there was much less damage in the muscle biopsy. So I think this is useful because it suggests also that this disrobing is doing something useful for the muscle. Then very recently, this has been published just a few months ago, uh, in the open label study, again, this don't forget this is a small number of studies, the number of children treated is in the range of uh, 25 and 22 ahead of right, this particular time point of three years at the time of this data path. So you can see uh, a difference in the trajectory of the patient it is not an immediate uh, uh, divergence because don't forget these are given weekly, they work little by little increases the level of dystrophin. But I think this is very similar to what we've demonstrated in the, or the companies demonstrated with the Avantisense. We were able to demonstrate that compared to unmatched control, again, numbers are small, so p-values are not significant, although they are indicating clear trends. The number of patients who did receive treatment lost their ability to walk much less than untreated control. And the respiratory function decline uh, is approximately half compared to the untreated control. And so this again led to the uh, FDA to approve this drug uh, just a few years ago. Nashvata made a mistake. The first drug was approved in 2016, this one in 2019, I apologize. I think that if one takes the, you know, I, I need to emphasize this, uh, I'm very proud and very excited. We haven't, and I'm also, happy to say that these drugs are very well tolerated by children, apart from the fact that they require weekly intravenous infusion. However, I don't think we should get complacent. There is um, you know, a divergence from the treated patient, but I think it takes many years to work. And clearly, um, and at the moment for EMA, uh, where there are different weighting of weight of emphasis put in the subrogate endpoint uh, as the stroke in as a biomarker compared to FDA, there are ongoing randomized placebo controlled studies that will uh, eventually satisfy the bar for EMA and MHRA approval. And we are doing all of them here at uh, Bosch. However, we would all like to have something that works better. And uh, this is, I'm not covering this because this is not work I'm doing as, uh, in this, as a uh, promoter, but I'm involved in all these clinical trials that are now using the information that developed for the first generation antisense to the second generation antisense. And the, these are both self-penetrating peptide and receptor-mediated antisense that are entering clinical trial as we speak. And I think I really hope that what we obtain the first generation drug will be uh, you know, overtaken by this uh, new therapies. But I want to move now into the spinal muscular atrophy because this is another field where there is an immense amount of, uh, of uh, development. This is the most common autosomal recessive condition, uh, lethal genetic condition affecting children. You know, the, um, if you are in a, you know, every 37, 40 people in the Caucasian population in UK are carrier for this uh, recessive gene. And the condition is quite severe. You can see here a child who has been diagnosed early in the first few uh, months of life. You can see this is how much as the child can do. It is got a you know, rapid breathing, um, mostly abdominal breathing, and it looks immobile because he is immobile, although his face looks uh, quite interactive and so on. And these children without ventilatory support 
will not survive the age of nine months, they never acquire sitting. So this is as severe as you can imagine. The molecular basis of the condition is the mutation of a gene called SMN1. These are recessive conditions, so this is a biallelic mutation, usually deletion. But I think what is interesting is that there is a, 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 a sister gene called SMN2, SMN stands for spinal mask, uh, motor neuron survival factor. This gene is very similar to SMN1 with the exception that there is a single nucleotide variation and this single nucleotide variation leads to an exclusion of exon seven, so a delta seven. Um, why in 10% of the transcript, therefore SMN2 does something identical to SMN1, but is only is 10 times lower. Uh, and as this is not functional. So I think these are, this is the molecular basis of this difference is a single nucleotide variation inside the exon. So this is, an, is a mutation that affected exonic splicing enhancer. But again, coming back to the video you saw before, that particular video was how to induce pushing out an exon, but with antisense it's possible to push in an exon that otherwise would be uh, excluded. And I think this can be done by, um, um, so I sorry, I just want to, yeah, this can be done by antisense oligonucleotides and the antisense oligonucleotides therefore uh, in SMN2 um, manage to retain exon seven that here is in green so that eventually the protein is very similar to what would have happened if you had SMN1. An important concept before I go into the, um, the clinical trial results where that have been done also here at Thomas Hospital is to go back and explain a further step regarding the genetic of the condition, because you will see there is a concept that I haven't covered um, that links with clinical severity. And this is related to the fact that this is an interesting biological point as well, that in the general population, the number of SMN2 copy number is variable. And this is associated with difference in the outcome. So if you go back to this particular severe child that is here, you can almost be certain that it's got very few SMN2 copy number. But this can be one SMN2 copy number in type one SMA, two SMN2 copy number maximum. But if you have many, many more SMN copy number, you may have milder conditions um, that I do not have the time to discuss, but they may affect uh, young people or even adults. You know, the more copy number you have, the more you are doing, uh, the, the phenotype is mild. So I think you will see some result where there is the outcome of children with type one SMA, two copy number are compared to, sorry, two copy number are compared to the one with three copy number. And of course, as you can appreciate from this slide, the three copy number have a better possibility because many of them edge into milder phenotypes. So just remember this. But again, from your perspective, SMN copy number is polymorphic in the general population and probably in us listening to this lecture. So the first studies were done in children with the severe two copy number uh, type one spinal muscular atrophy. This is done by giving an antisense because the condition is a motor neuron disease. You need to reach out the uh, alpha uh, motor neuron to the spinal cord. Therefore, the antisense don't cross that blood brain barrier. You need to give them intrathecally. That I think is not very practical, but it has the advantage that the tissue half life is months. So they do not need to be given um, too frequently. After a loading dose, uh, the antisense need to be only given three times a year. Uh, and the uh, company that is called Biogen has done a number of different studies. I've done some studies in children, symptomatic children, and I'll show you some, but also done some pre-symptomatic children and, and other studies that I will not cover in milder forms. And you know, we are, in, are here at Giratomos Hospital, we've been involved in essentially all of these studies. So in terms of what the drug does to the typical children with type one SMA, well, it works. Um, the um, you know, motor response is uh, only occurred in children who receive the drug instead of a sham procedure 
pseudo injection in the spinal cord that the, this study had a placebo arm that was eventually interrupted in the middle of the study because it became unethical to continue with a placebo control study in this severe population. And as you can see from here, not only, uh, I, I remind you, zero children with type 1 SMA achieve any of these, or essentially, you know, this thing that here, there are four uh, children in the placebo arm who have achieved their ability to roll, but full head control, uh, even ability to roll in percentage sitting and standing was only possible in the treated uh, children. So this was, uh, at the time, really a very exciting work. And I, I show you before this video, and I, I, this, uh, I will show what happened to this particular infant, um, because this is um, the level of function that this particular children was able to allow to achieve. So this is um, clearly totally unprecedented, and that this child is able. I will stop. I stop the, the, I should have taken the, the uh, audio off, but I think this is, has been possible for children in whom by this time, this child, this probably is two years and a half, three years, by this time, this child should have been uh, you know, paralyzed in bed, tracheostomy ventilated, not talking, not standing, not sitting, and therefore this was revolutionary for many of us. But I think what is even more revolutionary, and it is here in this slide. So this is in the middle uh, color, red and black, that hopefully you can see, is the trajectory of the treated patient, like the one I showed you, compared to the sham control. And I think if you leave the sham control even longer, they will go down. So children like the one you've seen are in the good responder here. But then they were symptomatic children. So the question is, what if you intervene earlier? And this is a study that has been done also by the same company in pre-symptomatic children. This came from newborn screening or other secondary affected children in a family. And as you can see, they have black and blue lines. And this is why I uh, made the point of the difference between the two and three copy numbers, because the two copy numbers are have less potential to improve compared to the three-copy number. And I'll show you um, what happened to this group of children recruiting to the study, which is called the Nurture Study. Uh, and you have in, in yellow the uh, two-copy number, in blue the three-copy number. So don't forget the three-copy number will be an advantage. And I think the exciting thing that sitting without support was achieved by all the three-copy number, by the great majority uh, of uh, of the two copy number, well, actually by all the copy number, but uh, only 84% in this developmental window that is necessary. In terms of walking with assistance, let's go directly to walking alone had been achieved by all the three copy number and by 88% um, of the two copy number, but 64 in the normal window. And then you can start to see that even the video showed you of that good responder um, in the symptomatic treatment start to be very different from what could be achieved if you intervene earlier. And this is very exciting. And of course, it's been now replicated in another study that has been published very recently, uh, where we also perform here at the Thurman Street Hospital, where we use this time not antisense, but a company uh, developed uh, AV gene therapy where SMN is replaced just once with an intravenous infusion of an AV that is given to those children, the ch affected children. And uh, we did a study, and the company did a study, both in pre-symptomatic children, this is called SPRINT, and in the symptomatic children. So, and I think I've started from the symptomatic children where you see the improvement in the functional ability of these children compared to the uh, untreated or natural history study confirming that this AV is also very effective in the symptomatic children. But if you move in the pre-symptomatic children, 
uh, there is there have been two studies being published just a few weeks ago or months ago um, on the efficacy in children who had um, either two or three coping number. And again, the results are uh, outstanding with 79% of the children uh, with two coping number that were able to stand alone and 64% uh, of two coping number were able to walk alone. And once you move in the three coping number, stand alone was 100% and walk alone was 93%. And uh, at the same time, and this is coming to um, uh, wrapping up this, we're also learning that the, I like to say there is no free lunch. There are, um, if you like, uh, increasing understanding that these very powerful drugs such as AV can induce problems. So people like me, I'm getting uh, uh, very friendly with many colleagues in the immunology department here, in the uh, liver unit, in the renal unit, because a number of uh, adverse events require careful monitoring and careful management. And I think these are probably, uh, well, most likely related to the huge viral load that is given in order to correct this defect after systemic delivery. And this is probably my final slide um, to indicate that the, the, you know, we are learning also for the unfortunate and rare children who may pass away. This is an example of a study where we have been involved for a child who died in the clinical trial, and, but he gave us, um, and he, he didn't die because of directly because of AV, but because of, you know, we are still treating a very severe co condition. This where they were studying the symptomatic children, but gave us a new, very good highlight on what is the distribution of this AV uh, in, the, in the human body and give us a, a lot of insight for uh, you know, what happens once you use this AV. So this is my truly last slide. And this is to say that you know, for people like me, this has been incredibly dynamic time. I think that the size of the response is starting to be transformative for these people. Um, and clearly, a newborn clinic will be very welcome. I think that it is, uh, the, the work is not finished. I think we will be treating these severely affected children. We do not know what happens after 10 years. Um, I mentioned that Indushan second generation drugs are improved, uh, emerging. And I mentioned to you that we are learning safety profile of this product. And I finish here to say that I done probably 2% of what I discussed, but um, the rest of the team I work with uh, done the remaining 98%. So, uh, I'm really grateful for the, the team here at UCL and the Pretoria Street Hospital, and I will stop sharing. Thank you very much, Francesco, for a wonderful lunch hour talk. Uh, it's been very interesting, and uh, we've already generated quite a few questions, and uh, please do ask more on the Slido. Uh, and, um, I will be able to ask Francesco. So if I can start a question from Nadia, um, to what degree can this technology treat nonsense and other mutations? So, um, so let's start from the uh, exon skipping. So exon skipping can treat nonsense mutation, but they need to be in an in-frame exon. So, you can push out an in-frame exon. You know, you know, Shafat, if you go back to the video that I showed that I, from the colleagues from the, the Dutch uh, funny video, that particular bloke who had a stop or lady, um, that was an in-frame exon and it was pushed away during the splicing process. And then you in induce an in-frame deletion. So that can happen. Um, otherwise, these type of drugs cannot work with nonsense mutation. There are other developments for nonsense mutation, but I certainly, and I'm involved in some of these clinical trials, but I didn't touch uh, those. Thank you very much. Um, uh, another couple of questions uh, is on the primary endpoints. Uh, and maybe um, one is specifically um, concerning the older boys and young men in DMD. Uh, 
are there specific primary endpoints for these uh, older children and young men? And uh, do any of the clinical trials target these um, older population? So the answer is yes and yes. So there are, um, I, if you like, the three main uh, aspects of function, apart from you know, uh, aspects related to tolerability and so on, and uh, also quality of life. But I think one is upper limb function, for which there are validated scale. One is respiratory function. I already indicated that this is um, you know, already showing some, uh, like some hopeful result uh, in people in the ambulant phase, but it will be expected this will continue in the non-ambulant phases. And, uh, and there are, and cardiac function is the other one for which there is uh, you know, a lot of attention, of course, in that population. There are clinical trials, both for AV gene therapy now for Duchenne that I didn't discuss because I, you know, we only started here in our hospital and, and I'm not if like a promoter, I'm involved in clinical trials, but in the Duchenne AV trial, but I'm not developing them. And, uh, uh, and they will be targeting both ambulant and non-ambulant patient as some of the antisense clinical trial will be targeting ambulant and non-ambulant clinical uh, patients. So if I, if I may continue, uh, kind of related to primary endpoints. Uh, so what I understand a bit better, neurodegenerative diseases, it's really difficult to, to develop the uh, primary endpoints that are easily acceptable by the FDA and EMA. It seems to an, somebody who doesn't know much about neuromuscular, it seems that the neuromuscular disease, it's much simpler. But uh, to do, but maybe it's not. I mean, uh, how difficult was it to develop these endpoints that FDA could accept? And related to that, uh, do they accept natural history studies or do you have to do controls? Paul, you were not going to ask me a difficult question. That, that was <laughs> how we start. So I know they, they have a very good question. And firstly, um, I think that there is. Um, there is, I mean, I, I should say, and this may be of interest to the audience as well. So um, I, but you know, when I say I, this is plural I, meaning in collaboration with many other people, we have been developing some of these outcome measures. For example, the primary outcome measure that is used in all Duchenne studies for ambulance children is called the North Star. Well, it's called in this way because we develop it. We develop in collaboration with multiple stakeholders uh, and uh, in order for this to be accepted and approved, firstly, apart from the clinical studies that we had to do in natural history and, in, and, and so on and so forth, we had multiple meetings with EMA. Uh, you know, I hosted, uh, you can find uh, the people who may be interested to find in uh, PubMed some publication. We hosted and had debate on whether this were fit for purpose. And I think that the, it was a very useful debate because there were many others and there were probably some, we knew, we learned both. I think Ima learned from us some perspective and patient more than us. Uh, and, uh, and we learned from Ima some of their perspective. So the clinical outcome measure are now validated and they use both by, and approved both by FDA and Ima. There is still a disconnect between role of surrogate endpoint between Ima and FDA. FDA is much more flexible uh, EMA is less flexible, uh, and that is why there the is like the, a time lag between approval in Europe and in the States. I think that we are, the, the, in the answer to the final question is that in actual fact, last week, I've been in touch with EMA because we would like to arrange another meeting to understand where the field is regarding requirement for placebo control study. They insist and FDA insists placebo-controlled study for AV gene therapy, but any person who is sensible, starting from the families and the children can unblind the treated child within the first two weeks. So I think we are pretending that we do AV gene therapy, randomized placebo-controlled study, but this is a lie. And we, you know, not a lie, you know what I mean? So the, the regulators pretend we do it 
but we can unblind everybody in 90% of them the first two weeks. So it's not a randomized placebo control. Why don't we talk about this? But you know, if you go as a company, it's very difficult. So we are arranging this as investigators and families to say, look, this just doesn't make sense. Can we discuss it? Yeah, yeah. We had experience like that where you had to do a LPs as a placebo control. I mean, this is ridiculous. So, so um, go to some some of the other questions. Uh, there is a question uh, regarding the inheritance uh, and uh, looking at DMD and SMA group of diseases. Uh, is there an increased uh, incidence in uh, uh, families from consanguineous uh, with consanguineous marriages? So the for Duchenne, the answer is no, because it's X-linked, and therefore you know the risk is uh, the same, respective of um, sex, religion, uh, marriage, and 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 whatever. Uh, and in actual fact, perhaps something that is important for people to realize, because there is a little of this, you know, this has been X-linked. Uh, it looks as the fault is always with female, but actually the a significant proportion of Females will get um, mutation also from mutated sperm cell from their father. Uh, of course, um, so if you know, I cannot have a boy with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but um, my daughter potentially could be a carrier. Um, and because it's excellent, she will not have clinical features and she is at risk of having a child with Duchenne. So I don't think we should only blame male, females, we should really share the, the, the problem. This is very important to discuss with families because otherwise you induce, you know, some sense of guilt and, you know, clearly nobody is at, at fault, but uh, but to be ex-linked, I think is a, is a little of a misnomer because males may be initiator as well. I think that if for the autosomal recessive, I think that it is a, such a common disease that you find the, the, um, um, the, it, it is the most common recessive disorder, together with cystic fibrosis, uh, in all population. And uh, it may be like it is likely that in some family, in some areas where there is consanguineous family, family uh, marriages, this may be even higher than what I described. But I don't think there have been major report of um, huge variability that really makes uh, such a big difference. Because it is so common in the general population anyway that uh, it's like the enrichment of an ultra rare disorder that is what happens uh, for um, you know for consanguineous uh, marriage doesn't appear to really provide a major additional risk. So I don't know if this is a difficult question or not, uh, but how often do you see females uh, uh, affected due to um, X inactivation in uh, in that? No, no, this is, this is an easy question because I, you know, I'm, I still see patients, believe it or not, and I still remember how they look like. <laughs> I was in clinic yesterday because I moved back clinic on Thursday, so I had to regain. So for, for us, it's in some of our X-linked diseases, that's no, I very know. common. I know, no, 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 I, I, I know. No, no, it's, I, I was joking because, you know, this uh, last few months we had two, and I had two uh, of these, and these are followed two different routes. So the first, coming back to what I mentioned to you, that perhaps I could have uh, a daughter with who is a carrier, the great majority of these um, carriers will be totally clinically asymptomatic, but often the CK is a bit elevated. And uh, the creatine kinase that indicates some level of muscle damage that doesn't lead to problems, but is sufficient to, you know, they may have a CK of 900, and therefore, they may have a transaminase that are a bit high as well, because transaminase, not only you will know it, but some of the colleagues may not know it. They don't only come from liver, but also come from muscle. So if you damage your muscle, the transaminase will be higher. So one of the, uh, we have now a very good collaborative agreement also with Kings uh, in South London. They see a huge, there's a major liver center in the, in the country. So they refer to us females who have elevated transaminase and then have elevated CK. So in the last few months, I've diagnosed two, of which one is a completely asymptomatic carrier, and one actually had some symptoms and had mild symptoms, and therefore 
we do, as you probably do as well, ex-inactivation studies to understand what is the, how skewed is the inactivation? Because although the Gaussian curve suggests that the majority of people will be um, randomly um, in, you know, inactivated, you still have maybe just by bad luck, some people who instead of being 50-50 is 80 and 20 or 90 and 10, they're not many, but those people, those females can develop quite substantial weakness. Thank you very much. There, there is the the final questions just come in, and uh, um, that might be a difficult one. Oh no, there might be more questions. Okay, so here's we go. What are your hopes for the future, given the side effects of AAVs? Do you think it might make more sense to push for more focus on AONs? Well, um, you know, I think that the uh, unfortunately the the um, you know these children if you have an affected child in clinic it's not that you can wait 10 years and say well we wait 10 years and then we treat with whatever is best in 10 years time it's like if you develop a terrible migraine you know whether in five years time there will be a better treatment for it is not your interest you want the best that is available today so i think av does have a substantial adverse event uh, there have been two deaths uh, in two different clinical trials, um, and this was absolutely AV related, just to be clear. However, and that you know is a bit too long to go into the detail of the different products that have been developed by you know different AV capsid, different promoters, blah blah blah. But I think at the moment it's probably one of the most promising therapies for sure, and uh, I think that the company Sareta has five for a accelerated approval, and they will knock on the door of FDA by Easter 2023, okay? So I think that the emerging data suggests that, um, yes, there are risks, but the risk benefit compared to doing nothing is certainly in favor, in my opinion, of AV as they are now, but this doesn't mean that uh, in five years time, we will uh, ha not have better and safer AV than today. I think uh, the first generation antisense, like the one we have been working with, I think they are, you know, slow burn. They work, but they need a lot of time. I think that the, the we hope that the next generation antisense will really push the level of disruption into a completely different level. However, we also need to see how safe also them will be, because um, you know they they may be. Um, some safety issues and the clinical trial just started now um, for this novel generation antisense. So I, I would think the novel generation antisense uh, uh, are very promising compared to the first generation antisense. The safety profile is unknown. There is more data on the clinical efficacy of AV, more data on their toxicity, but I think that as the moment, probably the most effective way to deal with a big problem in addition is probably going to be AV gene therapy. Thank you. So I think probably the last one um, related to drug approvals, given the limitations you just mentioned, do you think the rules should change for drug approval in the case of AVs and AONs? I think that the, the uh, well, uh, you know, I think when, when you go and discuss with the regulators, they usually have very good arguments. And I think they, they you know, the, this is not a fight with regulators, is to get mutual education. That is also why uh, I was just discussing that I really am keen to have meetings with regulators to discuss uh, the shortcoming of thinking that if they receive in a, in a paper, Say this is a placebo randomized control trial. This is what it is. It's not. But I think let's talk about it frankly. The same for antisense oligonucleotides. There may be the possibility to have, um, like, uh, a, uh, as, you know, better and independent assessment. Most of the side effects are really backbone related. The type of antisense you you use, as opposed to the specific sequence. So I think there may be way to uh, facilitate a toxicology package once you have done a few so that you can make a more 
limit the toxicological package because I would say, um, and that is also the other discussion that we would like to have with the, with the regulators, that the, the, the brutal reality is that none of the adverse events, I've been, in, you know, I've been involved in AV, in AV and, and antisense clinical trials for a, num a number of years now, including many failed trials from other companies. So none of the severe, severe adverse events that were noticed in my children were ever picked up by any animal species toxicology study. Were not picked up by monkey, were not picked up by, so the non-human primate were not picked up by the mouse study. So at some point we need to have an honest discussion and say, you know, I, you know, the risk is for my kids at the end of the day. Um, this is almost irrespective of how you design your non-human primate study. So I think that, you know, I, I think we should discuss risk benefit of the studies, risk benefit of doing the preclinical studies, but also not pretend that the toxicology package make the study necessarily safe. So, and the final, final. Uh, if you were to think of the biggest challenge now uh, in the diseases like DMD and SMA, where there are uh, a plethora of different treatments available now. So what, what are the remaining or what challenges that are uh, ahead that you would like to overcome first and foremost? So I, again, you, uh, uh, you, didn't, you, you promised you would not, would not ask difficult questions. So this is not an easy uh, answer. So I tell you, um, there is an easy answer for SMA. There are an easy and difficult one for each of the two. So the easy answer for SMA is that in this country, you really need to do as uh, other 11 European countries are doing and as the States is doing where newborn screening is available. Because the cost of the available therapies, you know, there are three available therapies for SMA is astronomical uh, and the outcome is severely blunted if you treat symptomatic patients, so nobody wins, okay? And these have been all drugs that have been uh, um, tested and approved for newborn screen, for, for in newborns uh, in other countries. So that I think is, and I'm working with another group of people to ensure this does happen. The more difficult question is that what we are observing, and this means that our work as clinician scientists, you, you probably, Paul, are in a similar situation, is that of make sure that expectations are right. Because paradoxically, there is a lot of uh, unrest now in families, or especially the symptomatic ones that are treated, because they are much better this year, but they are not normal, but they want more. But this more doesn't exist with it. Uh, and I think having moved the expectation upwards, everybody looks at the best possible responder YouTube video. Everybody wants to do, be like, you know, uh, you know, I would like to, to be a rover as good as you are, um, but you know, it's probably not never going to happen, but, uh, and, and things like that. So there is this, um, like this connection uh, now, and we're working very closely with the advocacy group to make sure that, you know, we, 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 we gather the group uh, and the families, and uh, because at the moment this is leading to a lot of discontent, not necessarily, I'm not I'm talking in general, I'm not talking personally, just to be clear. I think for Duchenne, the most significant hard hurdle is the fact that, in, you know, I do not know what is your weight, Paul, but say your weight was 60 kilo. Well, of this 60 kilo, you know, 25, 30 are muscle. So the amount of tissue uh, is, in, is huge. So targeting muscle in a safe way um, uh, that is sufficiently efficient um, remains uh, something that uh, I think we are learning how we is, is getting much better with the next generation antisense. AV are getting better, but I think this is a moving target. And I'm pretty sure that in five years time, we will not be doing any of the things we do today because we will have better therapies. They are really emerging. You, you are aware, Paul, um, both in the next generation antisense and in next generation AV, uh, what is out there, but also other means of um, delivering perhaps uh, transgene without using uh, capsid uh, or viral capsid. And so, you know, the field is really 
moving really fast. But I think we, in reality, we need to do what is best for the patient today, but um, continue to work for the next generation. That's how Formula One cars go from one year to the other. And, uh, you know, uh, they don't stop just because they may not be uh, the best uh, possible performance because uh, running teaches you. And I think, again, uh, the same, I know that is for you being involved in this study is firstly a privilege, but also you learn so much. Uh, so, you know, we are in a good, we and people like me are in a good position to really understand what are the shortcomings and to deal with biological shortcomings, but also technical shortcomings. Thanks very much, um, Francesco. This has been a fantastic hour, your talk and all the questions. Thanks very much for your patience. Thank you.